Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. So let me start. Michael is our co-founder and president. Welcome, Michael. Thank uh, you for having me, everybody. Obviously, with the, uh, in terms of the election, a lot of people have some key questions on their mind. Uh, so let me start with, what do you think investors can expect from the first 100 days of a new administration? And from the things we believe we will see, what are the investment opportunities that should come out of this? So, Savan, I feel that um, the first 100 days of the election are going to be interesting. I think it's going to be an opportunity for the American people and for the world at large to really see the difference between campaign talk and what we can really expect to come out of the of this of this new this new president and our new office coming in. And so there's a couple of things that people are mostly sensitive about. And you know the first one, and especially for for our client base, people are thinking and talking about taxes a lot. And I think that if you think back and, and this president specifically in Biden's campaign, we spoke a lot about you know, tax hikes and discussions around that, but I think that we've seen that in Democratic presidents many times, and we haven't really seen the tax hikes, or at least significant tax hikes, too many times, though, in the past, going back many, many, many presidencies. And so for us, I feel that the first 100 days, we're going to start to learn about how real a tax hike is going to be. And I also think it's important to keep in mind that many of the more significant donors are major organizations, major institutions, and, and you know very wealthy individuals. And so there ultimately ends up being pressure between the campaign talk and how to get you know parts of the country excited about increasing taxes and what the reality is. But I would say that for me personally and for us at Yield Street, we rather spend our time thinking about where the opportunity is going to be in the first 100 days and from an investment perspective that we can learn from. And so some things on the top of my mind are there's been a lot of talk about infrastructure investments, right, and climate change, job creation, how are we going to access education in more creative ways, especially as a result of COVID. So where are opportunities in EdTech? Think about, for, for example, we heard a fantastic announcement this week about Pfizer's vaccine and others also working towards a vaccine. Vaccine distribution and logistics is going to be incredibly important. How are we going to get them not just in the U.S., but around the world? Well, how are we going to make sure to manage distribution effectively for the vaccine? I think we're going to learn a lot about how quickly the administration intends to try and get activity back up in the U.S. Are we looking at an economy that we're going to try and grow and bring people back into the workplace, bring hospitality, travel, et cetera, back up? If so, where are those opportunities going to be? 
If not, what does that mean for the economy and can we find opportunities elsewhere? Um, I think, you know, from a, from a more macro point of view, we don't know the answer to this yet, but if the Republicans keep the Senate, then we're likely going to see a very mild first hundred days and potentially in many ways a mild first couple of years. I always refer back, I remember uh, telling this to a friend of mine recently, it happened this time, it happened last election, it happened by Obama. Every trust in a state's lawyer is telling you, oh, you got to you know, manage your entire state, you can move your entire gift tax exemption, your lifetime exemption over now, you never know what's going to happen. And, uh, and, and those, those fears haven't really come to fruition. Um, and I don't necessarily believe that we should expect that it will this time, too. So I think our, our attention and our focus is probably best served looking at where the opportunities can come out, like some of the examples that, that we just discussed. Thanks, uh, Michael, for those, uh, for those insights. I think it's fair to say that uh, not just through the political volatility, but we've seen a lot of market volatility in 2020. In a sense, it has been quite unprecedented compared to, uh, to the previous uh, economic cycles and years. I think in October alone, we've seen an almost even split in up days versus down days for the Dow Jones. So aside from the obvious, like, why do you think it's important for investors to seek out investments that are typically less correlated to the stock market? I feel it's a, it's a pretty packed question. So maybe I'll hit on a, on a couple of salient points. So number one, I think there's a, there's a, broader, a broader issue to address from a macro. I feel that, it's, listen, you think about the greatest investors from an institutional perspective, the largest organizations. They pay a tremendous amount of money to have some of the best talent in the world who are looking at managing those investments. And what you've seen consistently across the institutional world over the last decade is a stronger and stronger move into the institutional investment, uh, into the alternative investment strategy. And naturally, retail is going to lag because we don't have that same expertise. But it seems and it, and it appears that not just what we believe, but also consistent with what's happening in the market, more and more people are moving into the alternative sector. And you're seeing institutions move up as well. And so I believe that in the last two, in the next two to three years, in my opinion, we're going to see about 30% of people's portfolios and upwards moving into alternatives. Now, why is that, right? What's behind that? So... Number one is I think the public markets don't offer investors what they used to. So if you think back 15, 20, 30 years ago, so our parents or other people would find themselves investing in earlier mid-state companies and be able to benefit from that growth convexity as those companies become bigger and bigger. So you think Apple, you think Microsoft, and a whole host of other businesses. So today, there are less public companies that are of that ilk that are coming to market. And a lot of that has to do with how much private equity capital there is and how much venture capital there is, which are keeping companies private for a longer time, giving them more flexibility and more uh, capabilities to grow at the scale without the needs of public markets. And what that means to investors is that we're not seeing the same opportunity with the return profile or consistency of growth than what people were used to in the past by investing in the public markets. I also feel that the volatility in the market has more to do with macro and other issues and maybe less to do with some things in our control. So for example, a particular stock that I've liked for a while is Caterpillar. I felt that um, you know Caterpillar has a deep correlation to infrastructure and both administrations, the Trump administration and the Biden administration have committed to making significant uh, investments in that space. But in one day alone, earlier this week, Caterpillar dropped 6% because it was unclear where a particular infrastructure bill was at a moment in time. 
that is an enormous move for a particular company to have when the broader backdrop is, hey, we're all supportive of infrastructure. And so the swings that we're seeing are far greater than what we're used to. I think that brings us down to another discussion, which is what is the participation in ops today? Why is it moving up? And why wasn't there greater participation off for retail? And so, Joe, if you could put that, that uh, slide you had back up there. So this is a slide I like to use um, very often. I use this when I'm recruiting senior talent in Neal Street. I've used this for the last number of years when talking to equity investors in Neal Street and talking to a lot of our institutional partners. And what essentially what the chart is showing you here is the, is the journey, the life cycle of an individual as it relates to their finances. So you have ages 18 to 80. And what you're seeing on the bottom, the grays and the blacks are debt and the top are investment. And early on in our life, 18 to 25, 18 to 30, we are generally have a tremendous amount of debt. We have student debt, we have housing debt, we have auto debt, we have consumer credit cards, et cetera, et cetera. As we get jobs, we start making a little more money, we get a 401k, we put a little bit in stocks and bonds because those are easy and accessible to us. And if you look at the sort of salmon color around the age 65, it's showing you that red bar is alternatives. And at 65, that's where you're seeing about a 10% investment in alternatives. And the reason for that is that if you think about the alternatives market and the types of investments that are available to you in alts, they typically have historically required you to have significant minimums, long lockups, and they were not accessible, therefore, by a majority of people. If you weren't able to build a, you know, enough wealth or financial stability, it was difficult for you to make those allocations to hedge funds or other, other areas. However, at Yield Street, with our technology, what's been most interesting is that for us, we've been able to leverage the masses to create quality financial, right? And what do I mean by that? We have 240,000 users on our platform. And so if we want to do a transaction for $20 million, to us, we have this entire universe to leverage, this great community of investors, where you could put in 5,000 and the person next to you can put in 500,000 or a million. And so we've been able to break down a lot of the barriers that have kept people out of alternatives and been able to bring them closer and closer. And so for me, one of the most rewarding data points at Yield Street is that if you look in the middle, the red bar is the average age of Yield Street investors 42 years old, right? And so being able to pull back that curtain for 23 years and giving people a head start on creating and getting on a path to financial independence, that has been you know, an amazing, amazing part for us here at Yield Street. Thanks, Michael, for sharing those uh, those insights, and I think it's it's uh, pretty telling uh, the journey uh, the journey we're on. Um, continuing down the path of uh, maybe more behaviors, just want to dive quickly into what feels like the people's fear towards uh, towards what's going on with the banks from an investor perspective. So, in your opinion, Michael, like what are banks currently doing that are maybe stoking or provoking investors? slightly erratic uh, investing behavior? So, listen, I think this is, first of all, it's my personal opinion here, right? But I feel that if you're a bank, right, I, I guess historically we should, we should understand what's going on here in a broader context, okay? And so banks are preparing for different types of scenarios as it relates to, to COVID and figuring out how to manage their portfolio and how to manage their book. And, you know, what that has created is an opportunity for non-bank lenders to take advantage of some of those situations which I'll get into in a minute, but let's zoom out for, for a second here. And if you think about past economic issues or sort of massive moves in a market, like we saw in March and the type of volatility we're seeing today, 
let's think back to sort of 2007, 2008 timing, right? So late in 2007, we started having financial issues. Then we move into later in 2008, you have Lehman, then we have the crash. Then you have Talc and Tarf where the government comes in with money. Then you have the banks sort of dumping all their assets, cleaning the books, a lot of that legislation that have come out. And then in 2009, you start having this big uptick. And so people, I feel, often have a little bit of a short-term memory and feel like, oh, the event happened and then we move on. But what was different about historical economic issues and this time around is I feel that in the past you had an event. Okay, So we recognize that the financial system was upside down. Banks were pushing products that had major issues with them. We got our arms around it. The government brought in stimulus. We had to clean up shop. The banks were foreclosing. They took assets back. Investors bought those assets and the economy started rising again. And so there was a finite outcome where we understood what the problem was that we were facing as an economy and sort of globally, broadly. And we created the solutions and we worked towards the recovery. The problem here is that the solution is not a financial solution. The challenge is not a financial issue. The challenge is a health issue. And the health issue isn't over yet, right? And so the event may or may not have occurred. And so think about this, we took, uh, it took us, we passed 10 million COVID cases, okay? And on the same day, but we passed 10 million, so the first 1 million COVID cases was 99 days, okay? The last million COVID cases were less than 10 days. But the market is still soaring from the announcement of a Pfizer. So it shows you that there's inherent volatility. Even today, and I think it was last night here in New York, Governor Cuomo was talking about having a curfew after 10 o'clock and not even allowing people in their, in their homes to get together with more than 10 people. And so the point that I'm making is it isn't yet clear to banks what the outcome of COVID is going to be. And therefore, as they're sitting there, they're not entirely sure of exactly where their next move is. What we haven't seen, what we haven't heard about is massive foreclosures, bankruptcies left and right, assets going on the street for dirt cheap. But if you look around, for example, hospitality in, let's say, in New York City, there are hotels that have been closed for eight months. And so what's happening to those assets? Who's paying the bills? And there's been pressure from legislation and from government really not to push for foreclosures, not to clean up these assets. There's been a tremendous amount of money that has come in from the government to prop the system up and to keep it going. But because it's still very unclear, banks are not as inclined to do new issuance and new deals as they may have been pre-COVID. And what that means for us at Yield Street and for alts in general is that when the traditional sources of capital are not providing the money that they used to into the system, the non-bank lenders and alts really win. So by example, we recently uh, sold out a transaction called supply chain financing. So supply chain financing, just high level, was a deal with a company that had $2 billion in revenue, $500 million in EBITDA, and we provided them with this financing solution and investors are, are going to see north of you know a seven and a half eight percent return depending on which deal for a six month term. Now that type of transaction is probably not something we would have seen a year ago because the markets were super competitive and banks were trying to come in to where sort of the top of the alternative um, clientele was. But now with banks not being as active and not being as willing to issue new credit, it gives us a tremendous amount of opportunity to increase pipeline, better quality, and better returns. And so for that reason alone, it's become a super interesting time where treasuries are very low, market volatility is super high. To be able to look at alternatives and get a little bit more consistency in your portfolio, it's really interesting 
investment opportunities. Thanks. I'm going to actually take uh, one of the questions that came in reading the question aloud. Aside from the obvious asset class levels impact of COVID, example, commercial real estate, what other winners and losers are you seeing or expecting in terms of other alternative asset classes? And you mentioned a few, Michael. What other winners and losers? So it's, it's an interesting perspective. Because, and maybe uh, um, share your, the time horizon that, you, that you're thinking of uh, because it's, it's hard to predict the future uh, on that front. Sure. So I think it's a tricky question. I'll tell you why. I think some of the losers are potentially winners for us. What do I mean? Look at aviation, for example. Okay? If I said to you in two years or three years or five years, you picked your time frame, do you see more people traveling at that point in time than you see at the peak travel pre-COVID? And I think most people would say, yes, we've become global citizens. We travel, going places, seeing our family, doing business in that form is very much part of who we become in, in this generation. And so on the other hand, look at aviation at the depths of COVID, down 92% commercial aviation. And so I think there's good assets, good business opportunities, distressed investors and distressed sellers. And so one example is aviation. Another could be hospitality, restaurants. And people are still going to continue to go out and eat, whether it's 22 or 2022 or 2023. But I, I believe there's going to have to be significant change in hand. The capital structure is going to change. Someone who has 90% leverage on a portfolio of aircraft is going to have to dump that or someone's going to have to recover from that. And so for us, what we're looking at is good fundamental strategies, strategies that we believe the assets are strong and good assets, but the sellers are distressed sellers. And that's where we believe there's real opportunities. So that's one. Two is private business credit. We're very long on the U.S. consumer. But the traditional sources of capital, like we did in supply chain financing, like we're doing in motorcycle finance and in other areas, the traditional sources of financing, because of what we spoke about a minute ago, aren't available. So that gives us an incredible opportunity. Think of single-family rental strategy. Guild Street launched its first single-family rental strategy. It was uh, up to $100 million partnership in single-family rentals, which is effectively the ability to buy homes and then rent them out or fix them up and then rent them out. That market has had a significant uptick as a result of COVID. People were moving out of high-rises, people were moving out of densely urban areas, especially with COVID and with the ability to work remotely and work efficiently remotely, people are looking for more space. And so we've seen a lot of opportunities and you know, that is a conversation in and of itself for, for an hour or two to talk about sort of where we're thinking about that directionally investment opportunities across the board, where either we see specific opportunities as an outcome of COVID, or we see opportunities that have gotten severely hurt by COVID, which, will, which we can be the beneficiaries of. Yeah. Uh, switching gears uh, and talking about an even more controversial topic, taxes. Looking ahead to, to the inauguration and post-inauguration in 2021, what are some of the potential tax implications that we can uh, foresee for alternatives or that investors should simply be aware of? So I think the easiest way to answer is utilize your IRA. People sit with IRAs for way too long. I'll give you one quick data point. We were doing a lot of research around the IRA business last year, specifically when we bought Wealthflex, right? And the, the idea behind it was we know that a huge portion of our clientele, especially if you look at the average age being 42, is going to have a decent IRA. And when we were looking at the market, you know that about $30 trillion of investable capital is sitting in cash in IRAs. People are underinvested in their IRAs, and IRAs are able to be used 
in an alternatives. And so if we're using a tax deferred strategy to generate returns and hopefully generate passive income like we offer yield speed or other alternative people, you're really enhancing your return profile and especially your ability to compound that over many, many years. So I, I, can't, I can't underscore enough how important it is to think about your IRA as a really strategic investment vehicle. The second is, I would really say broadly, I know that there's a tremendous amount of talk about tax plan in certain states and cities, 62%, 60%. I, I could be wrong, but my humble opinion is that it's going to be a huge, huge lift uh, to see something like that get passed. But maybe a better way to answer that is to say, we don't know yet, but we'll know, we'll know pretty soon what happens with the Senate. If the Republicans are going to hold down the Senate, I think there, I don't see a material you know, change. Um, I think it's going to be a lot of campaign talk versus realistically what can get, what can get moved. Um, I think the best thing for us is going to be to have a real balance between the Democratic and the Republican Party. And so that could be interesting. Um, and that's really, that's really how I'm thinking about it, especially over the next two years, if the Republicans hold the Senate. Yeah, I'm going to play um, non-host for a brief minute because I know a lot of our existing investors watching this webinar are looking ahead to more uh, product improvements in the tax uh, section of our product. So we're going to do uh, quite significant improvements in the first uh, quarter. And I think the most visible will be to list all your investments with their current status and uh, you know being able to download if the doc is available and uh, otherwise the expected dates if it's not yet available. And I think this is uh, trying to solve for the most common feedback we uh, hear from investors. Like, uh, when do I have all my tax docs? And there are differences between 1099 and K1s, as we know. And uh, when the ones that I'm missing will, uh, will come to me. Um, and in addition, we'll also have a, a bit more proactive communication from a communication and education standpoint. So we'll have a dedicated tax uh, FAQ section that will be available hopefully before, uh, before the early days. So um, now going back to uh, some of the last questions from my side, and then we'll take questions from the audience. You've talked about with the, the, the graph that you showed around participation and awareness in alternatives being quite low early on. When we talk about starting investing and diversifying as early as possible, apart from the events from that past year and that general talk about diversification and starting to invest early, why else do you believe it's important to begin investing as early as you can and also ensuring a proper level of diversification in general? I feel that, um, listen, for us, the mission here at Yield Street is how do we help millions of people get on road to financial independence, right? And what does that really mean practically? I think the simplest way to answer that is if you can wake up every morning and pay your bills and never have to worry about it, that is a level of financial independence that many, many people aspire to achieve but most really can't get there. And there's a whole even broader discussion around the dynamics that are different today than they were necessarily 20 or something years ago. For example, life expectancy is getting much longer, which is fantastic, but it also means that people who thought they had to save for 20 years should have saved for 30 years. And so there have been tons of studies where people talk about the idea that this generation and sort of, you know, today's 40s and 50 year olds and even younger are really going to have to step up and, and, you know, help kick up some, some money to support family and support parents, et cetera. And so if you, if you really want to achieve financial independence and you want to be able to live as long as you can, healthy as you can, without having to work till you're 85, you got to get started early. And the power of compounding is incredible. I think the challenge for a lot of people is, really not knowing where to invest 
and wanting to have better options than they think are available to them in, in the public markets. And so we spoke about why institutional investors and now retail investors are moving a greater and greater um, you know, part of their portfolio into alternatives. We spoke about the ability that with technology, Yield Street, of course, you know, selfishly, I'm going to talk about Yield Street, but naturally with between technology and new regulation that's enabling more people to participate in these types of investments, it's really an incredible opportunity for you to get ahead, to get started early, to get started in the amount that's right for you, to get started with the right number of transactions that you can really build a diversified portfolio. And so when we started the business, we were really excited about 506C, which allowed us to, for the first time as an industry to market to investors to help find people. And when you complement that with Yield Street's capabilities and technology side to really create an enjoyable, beautiful experience, an experience that speaks to you, right? It's not getting a 100-page you know, PPM, it's seeing the webinar, seeing the infographs, having the information broken down in the way that we want to consume it in today's digital age. And so I think as you look at the, the market and the things that have changed over the years, you're finally able to be in a position where you can feel empowered and make knowledge-based decisions. The information is available to you. The resources are there to help you understand what the investments are about and to see if you want a particular investment, if that speaks to you, if you're comfortable with it. The capabilities to make the investment seamlessly have been built and the opportunity to invest at the right amounts and across a number of transactions to give you diversification are available. And so when you put that all in place, and you appreciate the power of compounding and you realize sort of where we're going on a much longer term approach, you got to start early. And the earlier you can start, the better you're going to be. Yeah. I think it's a, it's an important also um, time to mention that the um, SEC has been updating some of the definition for accredited investors. The new uh, rule will come into effect on December 8th, if we're not mistaken. It's slightly broadening the ability for people to uh, invest in alternative investors, in alternative investments, sorry, without the previous uh, income or net worth uh, requirements. Uh, and it's mostly around a bunch of certifications or licenses that one can have in order to invest there. Switching maybe to some of the uh, now more questions came in. The following question, how can I insulate loss when investing in alternative investments that require a 12 to 18 months commitment Example, if I put 50K into art, real estate, sheep refinancing, or something like this, what happens if a few months in the company or one asset goes under? Uh, in a large equities portfolio, I can easily reduce or increase my investments to mitigate major loss. So can you maybe uh, explain and go back to maybe the power of diversification and uh, maybe how quickly um, we manage uh, potential recovery efforts as well? Sure. I think as in the first thing to say is, is you can't sugarcoat it, right? Investing comes with risk. I had an old office that used to be on the 54th floor and I was in the same business. We were lending, we're in the alternative space. And as you can imagine, everybody comes with their different ideas of why their business was the best business. And I used to always remember this great line, I would say, you can take a million dollars in cash, throw it out the window, take the express elevator downstairs, there won't be a dollar left on the floor. It's easy to put money out. The hard part is really bringing it back home. And so in my view, you don't invest with somebody because somebody has just a good story to tell you why a particular opportunity is effective. You got to invest in an opportunity for a few reasons. One is, do you believe in the value proposition that they're offering? Is the downside protection available sound, right? It's a risk balance. 
And do you believe that the team, you know, the originator in Yield Street, have the capability, the resilience, and the, and the vigor to go after and sort of enforce those rights and enforce that collective? And that's really important. The next thing is understanding portfolio construction. We can have the most conviction in a transaction. And at the end of the day, if COVID hits, there is no stress test that's going to solve for COVID, right? You look at a business, you say maybe they're going to go down 20%, 40%, 50%. You don't underwrite a business to be closed for months, right? Or in some cases, uh, you got to have the best hotel in New York City who hadn't gone below 60% occupancy in 10 years. There is no underwriting scenario that you would say zero for, for X number of months. And so the reason that I bring that up is because no matter how much we believe in a transaction, no matter how much we like a deal as an investor, and I'm speaking more as like a personal investor, we need to stay focused, we need to stay disciplined, and we have to have portfolio diversification. And when you have diversification in your portfolio, even when something goes wrong here or there, the rest of your portfolio is going to continue to generate income. You're going to absorb either the risk of loss or the temporary, you know, gap in cash flow while the asset is being worked on and you'll be able to continue investing and generating income. And so there's different severity, you know, there's different situations and sort of how impactful they could be. Give you an example. Uh, we had a hotel property that we were a lender on in Orlando. Obviously as a result of COVID, the hotel had to close, zero cash flow was coming in. We had to get the forbearance agreement. We spent months with the borrower. We worked on it. Ultimately, we ended up exiting the loan and we were able to recover 100% of the principal and our interest. Sometimes it'll be as good as that, as quick as that. Sometimes it won't be as strong as the recovery. It'll take a little more time. But if you diversify properly and you build a portfolio in a healthy fashion, then ultimately the diligence will speak for itself, the underlying assets will speak for itself, and your portfolio shouldn't be too impaired, and you should do well. Yeah, thanks. A few more questions, uh, and some of them relate to um, access as well. Uh, many yield street investments still have a higher entry point, namely $10,000 minimum, than many investors can manage. Are you launching more products like Prism Fund that lower this barrier further? And if so, when? So as I started out a little earlier, I said, you know, yield street's mission is to create financial independence for millions of people. Right? And really, it's for as many people as we can. When we started the business, Melinda and I had a vision. We used to say, we closed our eyes, we'd walk down the street, and you'd have a school teacher and a bus driver and a garbage collector and a Wall Street banker and whoever it was, and we'd say, hey, that's the, you know, that's Yield Street. We love it. We invest in it. We grow our wealth. We got financially independent. And so for us, we have always been incredibly passionate about it. To tell you like one step further, think about our employee base. You have people here that work 12, 15 hours a day building these beautiful products, creating this business, growing this business. And not everyone's accredited either. So they really want to be able to participate as well. And so our drive and our goal has always been to be able to launch these products for a larger audience. Part of it is a regulatory challenge, like Savannah alluded to a couple minutes ago. We are making progress. The SEC has opened up a couple years ago as general solicitation. Now it's creating a little bit more lax guidelines. We have been able to figure out how to utilize a product like the Prison Fund that is available. And so we look forward to continuing to develop new products that allow us to be able to expand the offering to as many people as possible. We don't want, you know, arbitrary income barriers to be the deciding factor of whether someone wants to or should be allowed to invest. We have limitations that we have to work with. But uh, for those of you who, who have watched a webinar or saw, you know, information about our journey to open the present fund, it took us 18 months to get the present fund open. 
and uh, a tremendous amount of investment. And so we're committed to, to finding more solutions to develop for larger audiences. Yeah, and I would say also um, maybe not known to, um, to everyone, we've made a few deals actually available with uh, 5,000 minimum. And more importantly, we uh, recently lowered the minimum uh, on uh, our short-term notes program to $1,000. And uh, in addition to that, for uh, the PRISM Fund, subsequent investments have a $1,000 minimum as well. So the first time is 5K, but if you uh, invest the second time, it's uh, 1K minimum. Um, a question around, um, does Yield Street, uh, is Yield Street considering a product to invest in late stage funding uh, of the growth startups that may be coming soon for public listing or an acquisition target? Quite, quite a specific question on an investment product. Well, that's a very specific question. I will tell you, you're the first to hear it. I am not committed to it, but we are exploring a fund partnership. So the way I think about it is there is still significant risk in late-stage companies, whether it's on the value or the execution or their ability to go public. And so I think the best way to engage in that discussion is to identify an opportunity where there's a diversified product like fund where there is you know, a basket of these opportunities. I think there are a number of leading investors in large funds who have really done very, very well over the years in late stage companies. And for us, as you know, we continue on our journey to offer new products and to expand things like Prism where we have diversified product, we have been looking at late stage companies and late stage portfolio to invest in together with a, you know, a proven manager and a significant manager. We haven't committed to it yet. It's not sort of officially on the product roadmap, but it's definitely something we're looking at. Thank you, Michael. What is your current uh, thesis on active versus passive real estate investments? We don't have much more clarity on the, the meaning of active and passive in that, in that uh, regard. So uh, your best guess, Michael, on that. My assumption is the question is, hey, should I you know, build buildings or buy my own buildings or should I invest with, with other managers? It's a difficult question to answer. It depends if there's a particular area of market expertise that you have. It depends if you want to be the equity or the debt. What type of return profile are you looking for? So it's a very hard question. I think that to answer it from a very macro perspective, if you're in the business of being an active real estate investor, then you're betting on yourself and your expertise and whether you believe that you can do better than you know, a particular investment product that's being offered to you. But if you're not, then I think it would be very difficult to sort of part-time invest significantly and, you know, and really have the confidence versus a proven asset manager in a space with a great track record. I'm going to go with, the, I think, the last question that came in my way, at least so far. I've noticed that a few offers have seemed to take a bit longer to reach full participation. What do you attribute the slower uptake uh, of this? And maybe it's a good time to also explain our investor base, the, all the work we've done to ensure that we have multiple deals always open on the platform, Michael. So I know it's, uh, it's sort of my show, but honestly, I think you're probably the best one to answer this. So I'm going to put you on the spot, so on, it's on you. Yeah, so I, I think a few things we've, um, you know, in the past and for, I think, for investors that have been with us for uh, a few years, we used to have deals from time to time without necessarily a, uh, consistent cadence. And essentially, we've, we've worked in the past year or so 
to really provide a much bigger and much more consistent supply. So you can achieve diversification by having multiple deals open always on the platform and not just necessarily, uh, you know, pick and choose the deals that, that, that used to come from time to time. We have so there, the prison There's an example I used to get on our own we used to talk about it. The, from a customer satisfaction perspective, probably the most consistent point of frustration for our investors was the deals were selling too quickly and there are never enough deals on the platform. And the example I always used to say was, it's like, you know, going to Whole Foods, you know, they have great product, high quality product, but imagine going there and every time the shelf is empty. And so Savan and the team have really worked, as he said, to try and build more consistency, more liability on the platform to give a store of product at all times where you can go and understand sort of the, the relative opportunities on the platform and how do I build a healthy diversified portfolio? Yeah, and I think in the past six months alone, we've had, or at least since uh, June, July, we've had uh, the Prism Fund uh, almost always open. We've recently made that announcement. So it's really uh, literally 24-7 on the platform and always raising funds. We have short-term notes that is a kind of uh, also consistent program in terms of availability. And you've seen, if you're uh, familiar with the platform or logging in frequently or just receiving our emails, that we have a lot more offerings uh, at different, obviously, duration and yields and uh, risk levels. And our job is to make sure that we present created offerings that then, you know, fit uh, your different investment preferences. So we're already uh, making a lot of progress in understanding better your investment preferences, um, which you can always, uh, you know, input within the product itself uh, to give you more opportunities and understand better what other opportunities you're looking for uh, that we uh, don't make currently available. So another um, question came in um, for me, it seems. What new product features are on the horizon and how do you plan to continue to improve the user experience? I mean, I think this is, uh, you know, uh, what we do every single day. We have a team of, uh, you know, dedicated engineers, product managers, designers, uh, marketers, and many others that contribute uh, to this journey. Um, we always strive to improve the different experiences that compose the entire uh, experience for new investors and existing investors alike. Um, and hopefully you've seen um, a lot of progress in the past few months. I mentioned the tax uh, piece, which is quite uh, specific, but making sure that um, we continue to improve how you onboard onto the platform, how you invest, how you check your portfolio. And importantly as well, how do we make sure that all the educational content that we provide that is available under uh, you know, resources or FAQ or our blog make its way into the core product so that you see it in context. I think you've seen recent improvements to the, um, to the activity feeds uh, and you'll continue to see a lot more before the early days. So I think it's, uh, there's a lot of new features on the horizon. I'm not going to disclose one specifically today. It's a journey. We, you know, we, we release new things every, uh, every two weeks. We do not communicate on all of them, but uh, we track also the feedback from uh, investors. So uh, looking forward to always hearing suggestions 
can always get in touch with us uh, and our investor relations team. Good ideas come from everywhere. We are here to, uh, to kind of improve and serve. So maybe, you know, I would, getting, close yeah. that point. I would just close that point and say, you know, when we discussed making, making that move from sort of scarcity to more consistency, there was obviously a lot of sort of questions internally, but the most sort of rewarding thing to look back on and to refresh on is if you look, you know, this uh, in, in Q3, we saw over 100% growth in Q1 and Q2 combined. And if you look at the last number of months, consistently over every month, we continue to see increasing number of investments and increasing number of users having the opportunity to come in. And so when you were a first-time user in the past, it was very difficult for you to get that access. And now you actually have the opportunity. You sit down at home, you sign up, you look through an investment opportunity, and you can go ahead and make an investment. And so we're seeing that the consumers are happier with the process, happier with the number of products offered at a time, and the business is growing as a result of it. So it's, uh, it, was a good, uh, it was a good journey for us, and it's really it's the right direction for us to continue to go to to build a better experience for people. Absolutely. Any, maybe, Michael, uh, parting thoughts uh, before I conclude with a, with a few items? Parting thoughts is I think um, we're living in an interesting time where volatility has become, in some ways, the norm. And, you know, I talk to people all the time, and I think there's a level of anxiety or a level of emotions that we don't want to deal with when we think about our, our investments, our passive investments. We want to focus on our work. We want to focus on our family. We want to focus on our day-to-day lives. We want to make sure we make responsible and good investments over time, but we want to see some more consistency. And I think um, when you think about all that and you think about passive income and asset appreciation and you know, getting on a road or achieving financial independence long-term, alternatives really is a very, very important part of that portfolio. And for us at Yield Street, we, you know, one of our core values here at Yield Street is investor first. And that can mean everything from making the experience better and better every day. It means identifying the best-in-class investments and working harder, finding better partners, always growing. It's about being focused on recovery when you have to do that. And so from our perspective, we're here to build this business for you. We think and we feel that the opportunity that we're bringing to the market is a good one. It's incredible. It's helping people. But the best way that we can keep doing better and to bring you more opportunity is to get better feedback from you, more consistent feedback. Tell us what you want to see. Tell us where your pain points are when you're thinking about dealing or interacting with your finances, remember that we are a tech company first. We have tremendous capabilities on our team. If you think it's an outlandish idea, but you think it's a, a challenge, it's being you know, had by many people as it relates to how they manage their money, how they think about creating wealth, then bring it up to us and we'll see if, if we can bring it and we can enhance it and we can make that available. Um, I would love the, uh, the opportunity to see all of you at yieldstreet.com. So please come visit, look about our offerings. We have some great offerings available now. Our pipeline is really robust, so you'll see some more interesting things. If you are an originator or an asset manager and you're looking to you know, tap into Yield Street's expertise and our capabilities and you want to talk about having Yield Street finance some of your transactions, then visit our Raise Capital page and send us an email at originations at yieldstreet.com. Stay tuned, and uh, we're going to continue to release content on a regular basis. Stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.